Hey, welcome back to the Ameritics with Kim Munson, where we dissect issues as right versus wrong instead of right versus left, agree or disagree. Let's have a conversation. Thrilled to have a conversation with Dr. Brian, Dimi- Brian Dr. Brian Dimitrovic, and uh, just was listening to that song, Running on Empty. This economy is not running on empty, is it, Brian? Not at all, Kim. I mean, it's really surging. This all-time high in the stock market is something else. I think that indicates that the markets understand that the electorate broadly realizes that this Trump tax reform was wonderful and has to be sustained no matter what happens after 2020. Well, and uh, Brian, it's so good to have you here. There's so much I'd like to ask you about. But as you mentioned, typically the market is looking into the future. And at this particular point, the market is is saying there's a bright future for America. And uh, one of the reasons is, is because, uh, as you mentioned, cutting taxes. And Trump has done a number of different things. He's And um, you have the five pillars of uh, Reaganomics. And would you share that again with our listeners and uh, let us know? Let's go through how, how are we doing on each of these five pillars right now? Sure. You have the five pillars of Reaganomics. That was a term that Arthur Laffer coined while he was with the Reagan Administration Advisory Board in the 80s. It's tax rate cuts, so low taxes, low spending, regulatory restraint, stable money, and free trade. So those are the five pillars. You make progress on all five of those. In the United States of America, you're going to have nothing but prosperity. And what we had seen, though, Brian, with with the administrative state, with the more and more politicians and bureaucrats and interested parties, you know, really putting their hands on the economy, we were seeing, you know, higher tax rates, higher regulations, um, you know, less free trade, uh, you know, more and more spending. And so trying to get that turned around, you were seeing, I, I can feel there's you know, a bit of a skip in the step of the economy and also in everyday people. You know, I know that, that we talk about all this divisiveness, but I'll tell you probably about 95% of the people that I greet on the street or when I walk out of the building here uh, from the studio, you know, it, it's all the descriptors that we have. Uh, it's all the things that people want to divide us, you know, black, black, white, Hispanic, man, woman, gay, straight, all that. And p- people are greeting each other. They're smiling at each other. There's only about I'd say about 5% that's so angry. So I see a lot of unity coming together. But let's talk about, first of all, the tax rate. What happened with Trump on the tax rate that you want to share with our listeners? Yeah, I mean, the top tax rate went down only modestly, only a couple points into the mid-30s. The most important part of the tax reform, without question, is the reduction in the corporate rate from 35 to 21% at the top. Um, that was an enormous tax rate cut and has everything to do with the corporate business resurgence in the United States with people getting that spring in their step that you're talking about, which is the birthright of every American. Mm-hmm. America is the land of opportunities, American dream. When you come to America, you're going to have a spring in your step because you're doing well. And for a long time now, we didn't have that, as you said. You clear out major tax rates. You're going to get that as a matter of course in this country, and that corporate tax rate was the centerpiece of that bill. Okay, the next one. Let's let's bite off. In fact, uh, looking at one of the headlines here, uh, let's see if I can find it. But we're not getting the spending figured out, and it has been a bipartisan kick the can down the road kind of a thing. But that's kind of the bugaboo that I see. What what do you think about that? 
Yeah, that's really disappointing. I mean, the federal budget is just careening towards $5 trillion. Um, now, I have all, long said that one, one of the most important ways to cut spending is to lower tax rates. In that, when tax rates are lower, we see people get their, skip in their step. We see a lot of people start to succeed in the private sector. And I believe, based on a lot of evidence, by the way, that given the opportunity to work in the private economy over having a public sector job, when there's real opportunity, the vast majority of Americans will bolt towards a private sector job. So I actually think that one of the long-term ways to cut spending is to reduce the flow of people into the government workforce by making the private sector so attractive they would never think of having a government job. So even though Congress is really lying down on the job in terms of this $5 trillion spending, I think if we keep cutting tax rates, people are simply not going to participate in government spending anymore, and we're going to have to get it that way. Okay, so let's let's see how these two things are interrelated, though, Brian, because um, I, I hate to put a, a Democrat or Republican label on it. So let's say that people that want bigger and bigger and bigger government – I think that they look at, at at everything as static. Everything's a zero-sum game. So, you know, right now this is the economy, and if we raise taxes, we're going to raise we're going to raise that much more money. But it isn't static. If they raise taxes, then people adjust what they're doing. And your point has always been that if you lower taxes. People get more creative, they get more innovative, they get more productive, more industrious. And so you have a much bigger pie, and you can have a lower percentage of that bigger pie, and tax revenues actually go up. Absolutely. On on the immediate level, when tax rates in our progressive tax system that we have are lowered, especially at the top, there is a very powerful effect on the after-tax return to any further activity. So when the corporate rate went from 35 to 21, the return increased from 65 cents on every dollar to 79 cents on every dollar. That's big. That's 14 cents out of 65 cents. And all sorts of new decisions are made on that basis. So what we necessarily have, economically have, from any tax rate cut is a very significant push into the private sector. That will always result in better fundraising opportunities for the government and so forth. So there's nothing but good things. It's only a virtuous circle. (laughs) Okay, well, then that brings up the next thing, and that is rules and regulations. Uh, And we have seen uh, through the administrative state rules and regulations that constrict people. I mean, each of us, because you, you just think about it. We had something that was just passed here in Denver by the Denver City Council. It's a 300 page vision statement. It's called a Blueprint Denver. And I, I will guarantee to you, uh, I guess you should never say guarantee, but I'm, I, I would be 99% sure to guarantee to you that everybody here in Denver is probably breaking some kind of rule or regulation that they didn't even know existed. And the problem with that kind of stuff is then the administrators can choose who they're going to enforce those rules and regulations on and who they're not. And so when Trump came into office, my understanding, Brian, is, is he said, okay, for every new regulation, we have to get rid of two. And that has been a big deal for this economy, too, right? Yeah, Kim, what you're, what you're talking about there in Denver, really, to, uh, to be clear about it, is corruption by another name. It's corruption by the name of virtue. 
It's government Ooh. officials running around saying what people should do while saying they have the moral high ground. I mean, really, government officials should not be doing that. That's actually a moral fault if you're doing that. So to claim that it's virtuous and it's legal and all that stuff is uh, a real bait and switch. The thing, my theory on regulation is the, the reason it has expanded so much, in particular the last two, three decades, two decades, let's say, is that there was such success on the tax front. The tax, the supply siders just identified that top tax rate, 70% before Reagan, 39% under Clinton, and just said, let's get that down. And it was just there that you could rally around the 35% corporate tax rate. But the $5 trillion spending, we rally around that. But regulation is too amorphous. There's not one measure, there's not one standard that its opponents can point to and say, let's get that and slay it. And that's why the big government state has concentrated on its expansion efforts in the area of regulation, because they know that its opponents find it more difficult to rally around the reason to bring it down. And I think that's a very canny move, a uh, parasitic move by the government to switch into regulation where it's more difficult to rally counter-opposition. And so we've, uh, we've got to keep doing what Trump's doing. Well, and I agree. I think I was just thinking this whole regulation thing is almost like a, a tin-headed monster. You know, uh, you, you try to cut it off here, and it seems like it grows over here. And so once again, to reduce to reduce people moving into government jobs and government-dependent jobs. You know, you see a lot of this, um, and this has kind of been, I think, a new, in a way, a bait-and-switch, and that is um, the nonprofit arena that, in essence, they're living off of government grants. You know, uh, it used to be that nonprofit meant charity. It meant to be that we were doing things to try to help people. But I think that that's been morphed into something that is being used to live off of the government. And, and a lot of these nonprofits, instead of doing charity work, are actually doing public policy work, pushing for a more administrative state. Yeah, that's really sad. I, there's so much wealth that is tossed off on this country. The idea that private foundations, that foundations have to rely at all on government money it's just unbelievable. The, the Carnegie Library system, uh, just to say the most famous uh, kind mm-hmm. of example of philanthropy, is now basically a ward of the state. Uh, so whatever happened to Andrew Carnegie's fortune, it's no longer substantially supporting that library system because government took it over. Uh, that You bet that's a bait and switch. And um, I remember, you know, I used to talk to Phil DeStefano at the University of Colorado, the, the uh, chancellor, um, about how if there was a really big tax cut, especially in a prosperous metro like Denver, like a really big one, there would be so much private money. You could easily fund whatever the government's giving the University of Colorado, which is actually a lot of money, mm-hmm. like $400 million a year. Every time his eyes always lit up, and he always loved to talk about that topic. <laughs> I'm sure that he did. So, Hey, Brian, we're going to go to break. This is Kim Munson with the AmeriChicks, and I'm talking with Dr. Brian Dimitrovic. He is an economic historian. He is the author of the book JFK and the Reagan Revolution, A Secret History of American Prosperity. And he is also a senior associate with the Laffer Center for Supply-Side Economics. And I want to go through the other two of the five pillars uh, of uh, supply-side economics and then uh, also talk a little bit about what's going on here in Colorado. So this is Kim Munson with the AmeriChicks. We will be right back with Dr. Brian Dimitrovic. Hey, welcome back to the AmeriChicks with Kim Munson, where we dissect issues as right versus wrong instead of right versus left. Agree or disagree, let's have a conversation. 
And I'm just thrilled to have this conversation with Dr. Brian Dimitrovic. He is uh, an economic historian. He's written this amazing book, JFK and the Reagan Revolution. He co-authored it with Larry Kudlow. It's a secret history of American prosperity. And he's a senior associate at the Laffer Center for Supply Side Economics. And, and Brian, just very quickly explain what JFK and Ronald Reagan had in common. Uh, because I think J- JFK would be, um, he would not be considered maybe even a Democrat in this current Democrat Party. Yeah, Kim, I think I think the Democratic Party would be completely different if, if Kennedy had not been assassinated. I think that the great tax cuts that he made happen in 1963-1964 would have become standard Democratic policy. So, uh, yeah, what the, what the similarity is between Kennedy and Reagan is they both addressed economic sluggishness not dissimilar from what we experienced in the 2000s by saying we need a big cut in our marginal rate of the income tax, and they both got that. And while we're doing that, we can't have any funny business with the dollar. The dollar has to be very good against things like gold and foreign exchange. We can have sound money and tax rate cuts. And in both cases, there was phenomenal economic growth, the kind of growth we associate with the American dream. Well, and that's number four on your five pillars of uh, of you know things that are so important is stable money. How are we doing regarding that right now, Brian? I think we're doing okay. I, I like what uh, what the president is doing with the Federal Reserve. He is uh, really trying to get the Federal Reserve to accept some members, and the Senate put some members of its board who are very interested in stable money, in particular. Uh, the gold standard, which worked so well up until 1971 for 175 years of American economic greatness. And I know that uh, Stephen Moore and Herman Cain would have been great picks. Mm-hmm. And, you know, shame on the Senate for kind of ushering them out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Judy Shelton, the current pick, is a very good friend of mine and a good friend of Robert Mundell's, who's the kind of hero of the other book I wrote, Econoclast. Um, mm-hmm. She will hold the Fed's feet to the fire. So I think there's good progress on that. I know the price of gold's going up a little bit. Um, but I think the Fed understands now that this president is serious about good money, and this country loves its prosperity. Don't ruin it with a weak dollar and with uh, the fluctuating floating exchange rates. Well, and before we get to number five, speaking of, of weak, uh, producer Steve had seen this uh, meme. Remember when Obama had said, what's Donald Trump going to do to change this economy? Because we were, you know, we we're at one to one and a half percent GDP growth, and Obama said that that was the new norm, and that's why I think that we had sluggishness. You know, I think that uh, I think people, you know, did not have that skip in their step. And so Steve said he saw well what the wand is, and it had a skeleton, and it showed a backbone. And that is, that is one thing <laughs> is that seems to be the 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 magic wand out there is taking a stand and having a backbone. So let's go to the number the fifth one, and that is free trade. And, of course, that mentions the word tariffs. So how are we doing on free trade? Yeah, that's uh, obviously the big new thing uh, in the Trump administration. Now, Art, uh, Arthur Laffer and I have just written a kind of, kind of a major paper. We've jointly wrote it. It'll be published in about a week um, about tariffs, about the history of tariffs and their relevance today. Um, nobody likes tariffs. Tariffs are bad in that they are a tax. But the point about tariffs is that they are no more a tax than anything else is a tax. They're no more a tax than the income tax is a tax, than a sales tax is a tax. So we have to be careful about free trade. If we say no tariffs ever, 
we can't say then, and we'll have an income tax instead of it. Because when we've done that, we've often taken our income tax rates to 50, 70, 90%, or Bill Clinton's 40, Barack Obama's 40. We can't have that kind of free trade. We can't have free trade that just gives us free reign or jack up that income tax. So what Laffer and I have suggested, okay, President Trump, you want some tariffs. That's too bad, but whatever. We'll deal with it. If so, let's have still further income tax cuts. And if we have very modest tariffs, and I mean very modest, and then continual rates, uh, cuts in the rate of the income tax, this economic boom will know no end. Well, and that was one thing on tariffs that on one of our interviews previous you had said – uh, Brian, what was interesting is that Donald Trump has has brought it to the attention to the American people that these other countries have been charging tariffs on our goods going into their countries. I think that many of us thought that, hey, you know, there was free trade, but they've been charging tariffs on our products going into their countries, and he's shed a light on that. Hey, Kim, that's another very positive development. That's something that went unsaid and unremarked upon for decades, really. We kind of assumed in the era of NAFTA and the general agreements on tariffs and trade, the World Trade Organization and all that, that, oh, we live in a world of free trade, um, which covered up all these glaring exceptions to free trade, especially on the part of other countries, and that in Canada, for example. And that has been a very productive development that we have uncovered those falsities. I fear now that we're kind of forgetting those lessons and the European Union and other China are kind of shuttling those tariffs back into place. Of course, that's also the secret to their sluggishness. I mean, if you want to be a sluggish economy, have a lot of secret tariffs. Aha. Okay. Brian, we are just about out of time. And there is this question that I've just been dying to ask you. And that is, and I've seen Arthur Laffer in person, and and he is funny. You know, he he was one of those young guys that came up with this whole idea of supply-side economics uh, under President Reagan. And you guys are friends. And Arthur Laffer is friends with Polis, uh, Governor Polis out here in Colorado. And Governor Polis seems like a regulatory guy. He seems like a high-tax guy. Can you explain that? friendship between the two, and I really wish that Polis would listen to Laffer more. Sure. Uh, well, I know this. So Arthur Laffer used to be in, in California. That's back in the old Proposition 13 days and afterwards. Uh, and he moved to Tennessee later on because the income tax is 13% in <laughs> California. Well, back then when he was in Southern California, he had an intern, and I think he knew his mother, and that was Jared Polis at the age of 13. I think his name was different back then. But anyway, uh, and he, they really got along well. So the, this 13-year-old, you know, up-and-comer was an intern. And my hunch is that since that time, I don't, I don't know that a month has passed that they haven't talked on the phone. I know they talk on the phone very regularly right now, and that Arthur Laffer tells him, if you're going to have a tax cut, make sure that it's on the, the, the broadest base, that you can you cut taxes across the board. And I want to point out that... I have been saying for years, there's going to be a Democrat who is going to make peace with tax rate cuts. And people like Stuart Varney, my good friend on TV, said, oh, Brian, you're too optimistic. You, you're besotted with John F. Kennedy. But Jared Paulson in Colorado has said, I think there should be a cut in income tax rates. And that is the beginning of big things. Okay, Brian, my understanding is he has kind of floated that idea However, it's been possibly in doing a deal 
to get rid of TABOR, which is Colorado's uh, um, amendment. It was passed by the people of Colorado about 25 years ago. It's the Taxpayers' Bill of Rights. And so I'm not sure that I really like that little income tax cut because then you get a a new legislature, a new governor in there that could jack those back up. I I really want to protect TABOR. So I'm a little concerned about that. Kim, I totally understand. I mean, whatever... Uh, gains have been made. I mean, they have to be husbanded. What I marvel at, just kind of from the national perspective, is that a lot of Democrats used to be in favor of tax rate cuts because they understood how much it resulted in jobs and opportunities for the masses, even tax rate cuts on the top. Uh, That was Phil Graham. I mean, that was so many Democrats. That was Russell Long. That was Wilbur Mills. That was all the top Democrats. That was Bill Bradley who called himself a socialist as of 1986. Mm -hmm. And just to see that just completely collapse is just weird, and it can't be sustained. So however much Governor Paulus is talking about tax rate cuts, however imperfectly, that is the chink in the armor, the first one that we have seen in the Democratic Party in recent years. I'll consider a tax rate cut. And I would just, I would kind of suggest to Coloradans, that they could explore how to widen that little chink without giving away any kind of important gains. Because if we can make progress on that score nationally or in Colorado, Democrats, tax rate cuts, then we could really be talking about mourning in America. Wow. I hadn't looked at it that way. Okay. Uh, we're just about out of time. But a quick comment. You, you spend, have spent so much time on college campuses. And it is astonishing to me to see these these young, bright, many young, bright women that are getting into office and they are advocating communism. We have a a new uh, city councilwoman here in in Denver that she graduated from the the Denver uh, University of Denver. And she is is basically said, I am a communist. I want communal ownership of property. What do you say to this that's coming out of these uh, universities? Yeah, I, I hope that I sure hope they got their Twitter accounts and uh, their, their megaphones, because I actually kind of uh, sympathize with Nancy Pelosi's view on this thing. Um, you're really popular, is that right? Yeah, then, then how come you broadcast your views all the time? Because that, uh, there's lots of sound bites on, on the news for that. How popular really are you? Uh, AOC, our friend in Congress, for example, um, I, I think most of her interest comes from her opposition, who just likes to see her talk. Um, I'm not sure this stuff is really popular. Once you have an alternative, and we didn't have this in the Obama years, the alternative is what we talked about in the first part of this conversation. The, the alternative is really nice prosperity, where you can do well in this economy, like lots and lots of people, including young people. That has depth. That has traction. This stuff about intellectuals talking about communism, they say, I hope they have a Twitter account. Oh, my gosh. Brian Dimitrovic, thank you. We are out of time. But again, uh, the book, JFK and the Reagan Revolution, A Secret History of American Prosperity. Be sure and pick it up. It's a fabulous book. So, Brian, thank you so much.